I'm going to read to you from a passage that you will, if you've been around church any length of time, you will know. It's from John 3. It's entitled in, uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and in my Bible it's entitled, You Must Be Born Again. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Oh, sorry, sorry. (laughs) I jumped two lines there. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John is writing an account. Basically, most of it is about really the last period of time of Jesus's life. And in this chapter, specifically, he introduces us to a man named Nicodemus. 
Now, Nicodemus was not your average guy. That, for me, is quite clear from the passage. He just wasn't anybody. He was educated. We, we know that. He's referred to as a teacher of Israel by Jesus himself. He was a Pharisee, and it says he was a ruler of the Jews. And the Pharisees even held him in high esteem. When you look at, uh, whether it's you call it history, or whether you look at um, what is commonly accepted, that Nicodemus was highly thought of, and it is quite possible that he was one of the supreme Jewish legislative and judicial court in Jerusalem that was under Roman rule. And so we don't just have any old guy here, we have somebody who is coming to Jesus to find out more about him. He comes under the cover of night. You wonder, might wonder, why would he come under the cover of night? Why didn't he just walk up to Jesus in the open and just have a chat with him? Why didn't he ask his questions in front of everybody else? I just want to suggest to you that if we were to turn to John chapter 7 and read verses 40 to 52, we would find that Jesus was causing division amongst people, not intentionally, just by being himself. Just by turning up, he was causing people on one hand, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? On the other hand, no, it isn't. He was causing division amongst people and argument and conversation. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee because Jesus had come down from Galilee? Is that really? Is he really the Messiah? Surely he would have come from Bethlehem, but they probably did not know that that's the birthplace of where he was born, where the village where David was. So it actually says in verse 43 of chapter 7, so there was division among the people over him. And then on top of that, being a Pharisee who mixed amongst Pharisees, the Pharisees themselves were not pro-Jesus in any shape or form. Don't matter what way you want to read the New Testament, they were not pro-Jesus in any shape or form. And in here, it says some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. They saw Jesus as a deceiver, not the one who was promised. And then just a few Chapters later, not only do we find that he is not just causing controversy amongst people, but what he is actually doing is he is causing the Pharisees themselves to start to debate how they are going to get rid of him. So it wasn't just that they thought they could now come back at people with their answer to who Jesus was. And to say, just ignore him. He's just some deranged individual who's turned up, believes he's the Messiah, and you know, he isn't. So what does it say? It says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There was serious division amongst the people. And so Nicodemus, this educated man, this man of position and social standing, comes under the cover of darkness in order to talk to Jesus. 
The last verses of chapter 2 say, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And so we have this growing furore of stuff around Jesus. And I think Nicodemus was in that place of, is he or isn't he? I, you know, where am I? Where am I going to come down? Which side of the fence am I going to fall on? And so he approaches Jesus under darkness in order to try and settle this issue for himself. Now, Nicodemus, he wasn't just going to be a Pharisee, but I actually think that Jesus made such a marked impression on him in this exchange that as I read from a a chapter later in John just then, it says this about Nicodemus, if I can find it. It said, Nicodemus actually said to them on one occasion, you know, he, when they were d- debating and saying, is this what we are going to do? Let's kill him. Nicodemus says, surely our law basically says that a man must be heard and listened to before any judgment is passed on him. And so for me, Nicodemus was highly impacted by this one moment this just this one moment they were saying do you under, do you not nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish that was the sort of background that jesus was in and nicodemus was coming in Now, Jesus had been making an impression. He wasn't wowed by the crowd. He wasn't wowed because they all spoke and and he was this center of attention, this place where everybody was talking about him. You know, many had believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Nicodemus said, we know that you're a man sent from God. Uh, In fact, he called him rabbi, teacher. You're a man sent from God. We know because no one can do those signs that you are doing unless he is from God or God is with him. But the adulation of men, which so often entraps people like me and you, never touched Jesus at all. He wasn't doing things for the adulation of men. And therefore, as it says, he did not entrust himself to them. He wasn't like the Pharisees who sought the places of honour. In Matthew 23, 5 through 7, we read these words about the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their philosophy, I can't even say the word, philosophies, broad and their fringe is long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others you see human beings you and me we might be wowed we might be wowed by the adulation of people 
That's why it is so difficult to find sometimes that line where when someone pays you a compliment, that you don't either let it go to your head and you neither dismiss it out of hand either. Because if someone has taken the time to come and speak to you, you know, you shouldn't just be dismissive, but we must always be careful that we do not allow that to go to our head. And we've got to remember what Jesus said. He said about the Pharisees, he was one of the seven woes to the Pharisees. He said, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's a quite a stinging rebuke, really. And then again on the Sermon on the Mount, when he is talking to the people of God, because you see, sometimes in church life, we all can end up at the wrong end of the spectrum of criticism and misunderstanding. And people have all got their opinion about how you are and what you do and how you should be. And sometimes when you're trying to walk and follow Jesus, you get, I won't say persecuted in the strongest sense of the word, but people's speech sometimes is not very nice and nasty about you. But then Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus meets Nicodemus. But it's what follows in the conversation that seriously interests me. There's a couple of phrases in here that capture my attention. It's the phrase that is used so often these days outside and even within church as a descriptor of the type of Christian we are. Have you ever been around people who say they're Christians but they want to emphasize to you they're not one of these born again Christians? Those fanatics, those over the top chandelier swingers, I'm not one of those. I'm not a born again Christian. I just believe in Jesus. Outside the church, you hear exactly the same phrase about those born again Christians. They're over the top. They're they're out of touch. So you hear it without and within. And yet this phrase is one of the most important phrases you will find in the Bible concerning who you are in Jesus. And the question is, have you been born again? And I ask it to all of you this morning. Have you been born again? At least there's one going (laughs) to heaven. Two. Any advance on two? Few. There's a few of you, yeah. But you must be born again. And why is it important to be born again? Because the scripture says you cannot see the kingdom of God and you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That is why it is important. That's why communion, like I said last week, we don't want to miss what it's truthfully about. 
People must be born again in order to see and enter the kingdom of God and receive eternal life. Church attendance is not enough. It's probably a good job, you know? Especially in this current day and age where church attendance is becoming more and more sporadic for people. So it's probably a good job that Jesus doesn't keep a a visiting list to see who turned up on a Sunday morning. But you cannot see, and the word see means be able to perceive, to be able to experience, or to even understand the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You cannot enter, so you can't move into, come into, begin to experience again the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That is why I believe the Apostle Paul, we actually heard it read by Simon this morning. It's not the scripture I've got here, but he used the word, let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. Paul was big on self-examination. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Peter takes up the same theme in his second letter when he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in the same way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I wonder if you've taken time recently. And I don't just mean a moment's reflection before communion to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. But it is really, really important. You may ask me a question like surely it's not possible for someone not to know that they are a follower of Jesus a Christian a disciple surely they would know surely people would know surely they would know if they weren't really that way but I want to tell you the church is full of people who turn up every Sunday who are not born again by God's Spirit. Don't want to shatter your illusion, but that's the truth. They're not born again by God's Spirit. In my inbox this morning, and I added this this morning, I had this article entitled Almost Saved. I had already done my sermon for this morning, and I get up, Later this morning, because I was at England Rugby yesterday at Twickenham, and we won with less than 15 men, which was astounding, you know. But the reality is, I'd, I'd prepared my sermon, 
I came up, I got up late to this morning, just before seven, went into my office, opened my sermon to go through it, and at the same time, as I always do, I open my emails just to see what's there. And there is this, this article entitled, Almost Saved. I had to read it, because of what I was going to speak on this morning. And it basically is saying, what I'm trying to say to you today, is... What are you really relying on for your salvation? We can look at the rich young ruler, not just Nicodemus, but we can look at the rich young ruler. He was a seeker of eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks in Mark 10. Jesus reminds him of all the commandments that he needs to keep. And he turns and with absolute unashamedness he makes this amazing statement teacher I have kept all these from my youth and yet he went away sad and Jesus' heart went out to him because you see On the outward appearance, he had outward conformity. But inwardly, he had not really responded to the Spirit of God. Attending church, doing the right things, living a moral life, being a person who serves at the lunch or Wherever you serve, outside of church, in church, that does not guarantee you a place in heaven. It might be an important part of the stuff we do, but it doesn't guarantee you a place in heaven. Then there was the five wise and five foolish virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come. They were all asleep, not just the five foolish ones, but they were all asleep. But five were prepared, five weren't. And as they hear the sound of the bridegroom at the door, they had lamps to light the way to the party that was going to follow. And the truth is, as they wake, the five wise light their lamps and the five foolish suddenly realize they don't have any oil. And so they start asking, lend me some of your oil. In other words, let me have some of yours. I'm going to actually get in from you. The reality is, they demonstrated desire at that point to get in. But it was too late. They were unprepared. You cannot get into the kingdom You can't and won't be in the eternal kingdom because your parents were Christians. Your father was, I don't know, the dean or, you know, whoever, you know, or the vicar of the church or an elder. You won't get in because of that. You will only get in because God's spirit has spoken to you and drawn you convicted you of sin and you have thrown yourself entirely on the mercy of God recognizing you can do nothing of yourself 
even practicing religion. I watched a thing on Hillsongs recently, which I found quite horrendous, and I'm not having a go at Hillsongs here, you know? That's not why I'm mentioning it. But you see, the presentation was absolutely fantastic. The light show was great. The music was upbeat and hip and trendy. Everybody was bopping. Everybody with their hands in the air. Everybody singing the words of the songs. And yet underneath all that was the biggest cesspit of stuff that was going on. I know it's the message and I know that some of you probably don't like the use of the message but the reality is I love the way it says it having the right password doesn't mean a thing when it comes to getting into the kingdom of God presenting all your works doesn't get you into the kingdom it is only when you are born of water and spirit so quickly very quickly water and spirit unless you were born of water and the spirit all right there is you're not born again you need to be born of water and of the spirit now what does that mean there's lots of conjecture about what that means what does water and spirit mean some have taken it to mean that water refers to water baptism And the Spirit is the calling, the conviction, and the drawing of you by the Spirit. I don't subscribe to that. Christian baptism wasn't even known at this point. So I don't think water has anything to do with Christian baptism. I don't believe... It has anything to do with natural birth. I tried to find out and I looked up other people to see if there was ever used a phrase like born of water to refer to natural birth, flesh. And as far as I could find at least, there was no mention anywhere of that phraseology being used as a description of being just born. So what does it mean? I just want to simply bring you back into the Old Testament. And this is why Nicodemus, for me, it was quite strange. He was a teacher of Israel. And Jesus made this statement to, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? It suggests that it was something in the Old Testament, for me, that Nicodemus should have known that Jesus was referring to. And if you were to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36 and just two verses or three verses, 25 to 27, we read these words. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness or all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here, water and the spirit are mentioned together with God promising the prophet 600 years before this moment that there was a time coming when people would be given a truly transformative new beginning in their life. Water here simply means that we're cleansed. We're washed clean of our sins. Unless Jesus has washed us clean of our sins and washed us from the idols in our lives, we are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. We're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. And the only way I can see in Scripture that that happens is that the Holy Spirit's work is fulfilled in our lives where he convicts the world of sin. And because of that, we come with our hands open and probably our head bowed initially. And we come before God and we ask him to forgive us. We turn around, we change our opinion about who God really is and what place he has in our lives. And you see, we get so easily duped into just the show being a part attending being an attender that is what I've done what is right I read my bible today I even might have said a prayer to Jesus today but has the spirit of God convicted you of your sin And has he convicted me of my sin? And have we come before God and done business with God? And not just done business, but God has cleansed us from our unrighteousness, given us his robe of righteousness to cover our filthiness. And has he put his spirit within us? How do I know if God's spirit is within me? How do you know if God's spirit is within you? It's a crucial question. You see, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God. We had no connection. But God did it all. How do I know if God's spirit is within me? Bottom line, there's a verse of scripture that I can't find. I thought it was on my sheet, but it isn't. But it says this. Maybe it's just come into my mind, actually. God's spirit in us causes us to want to do what he wants us to do and how to live and gives us the power to do it. You see, the person born again of God's spirit might struggle with some of the stuff they read in the Bible. I'm being honest with you, I do. There are some things in the Bible I struggle with. However, bottom line, God decides, not me. 
Even if I don't understand it, and even if I find it difficult when I read certain things, God is who he says he is, and therefore I surrender my life in entirety to him and I will trust him no matter what. Does it mean I don't remonstrate with God at times? No, I remonstrate with God. I am a person who likes to have long and conversations with him about certain things. But I want to tell you, in me, the reason I know I am born again of God's spirit, that I have been cleansed from my sin and washed from my sin, is because everything inside of me wants to do the will of the one who sent Jesus for me and sent him to a cross to die the most cruel death, to shed his blood, that my sins might be paid for And I didn't get what I deserved. I got what from him, what he deserved, righteousness. And he got what I deserved, my sin. I made that divine exchange. You might say, Dave, why on earth are you preaching the gospel in a church which is Pentecostal? Because in recent days... I have determined that it matters not how many times the gospel is preached, even to those who have heard it a hundred, two hundred, three hundred times. Paul once said this, he said, it is for me, I'm not ashamed to tell you again and repeat myself again and again and again. This is what God has given me. My calling was to preach God's word and I am going to declare in my remaining days with you, I am going to declare the word of God to you, whether you enjoy it, whether you don't, whether you think I deliver it well or you think it was the biggest load of garbage that I've ever preached. I do not care what you think. I am going to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I am. And if it is uncomfortable, it's not because I want you to be uncomfortable, but I don't want you ever to end up stood before the judgment seat of Christ and to say, he never told me. So I'm telling you, I am telling you, there is only one way you will see the kingdom. You will enter the kingdom. You will walk into the eternal kingdom of God, if God returns before we die, that we will be caught up with him in the air and go to be with him. There is only one way. We have to be washed clean of our sins and drawn by the Holy Spirit, change our whole thinking and focus in life and he becomes the all-important thing. Anything else, anything else... It's no good. Whatever you want to do. Does that mean serving people with food is wrong? No, it does not. It's an absolute. If God's spirit's touched you, that's what we'll do. Because that God wants us to look after the poor and the hungry and the homeless and those who are broken and those who are battered and those who are bruised. He wants us to bring them hope for a future And that's what he wants. Why do I want to get the New Testament into every home in Wells? It's because it is this 
that changes and transforms lives. It's this. That is why. It's all of God's spirit. I only got one last verse to share with you. And forgive me, I didn't realise I was 35 minutes last week. I actually thought I was longer than that. But I'll take it from you, Simon, that it was 35. Um, yeah, no, that's right. But I want to say to you, Jesus came for what reason? In Luke 19, he tells us. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. Do you know, churches would run so much better if they could remember why Jesus came. That's why that passage of scripture finishes with, for God so loved the world. He talks about being born again by God's spirit, by water and spirit. And then he finishes by saying, for God so loved the world, he sent Jesus that whoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. I didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And all we need to do is believe on him. But actually, it's whether we truly come to him is the issue. Or whether we want, like Ananias and Sapphira did, to keep something back for ourselves. If we are living like that, guys... We're kidding ourselves. Jesus is all or nothing. He's not a partial God. He's not a Sunday only God or a Sunday in the prayer meeting I go to in the week or if I go to a small group. He's not that God. He is a Monday through Sunday, 365 days a year, 366 on leap years. He is an all, 24 hours a day, seven days a week throughout eternity he is who he is so my question is will you accept this Jesus will you accept this gift will you quit your moaning and bickering behind the scenes your spreading of malicious gossip Will you stop those things behind the scenes? Will you start to live as we are meant to live? Me included. Because I'm not, not susceptible to those things. Will we live for Jesus? Will we come to him? Surrender all to him? To love him? To respond only to him? Because it is the only way, the only way to come. Let's pray. Father, as we sit before you this morning, every one of us knows if we examine ourselves where we truly are at this moment in time with you. Father, for those who have never ever responded to you, I want to pray today that you quicken them by your Holy Spirit 
But Father God, you do that work in them to convict of sin so that they have, Lord God, the opportunity to respond to you and to begin to see your kingdom and enter your kingdom and have the assurance of eternal life, eternal kingdom with you. For those of us who have been walking with you a short while or a long while, Lord God, will you once again cause us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Lord, in one version it says to see if we are still in the faith. Father God, may we, without being so negative about ourselves, recognise that self-examination is just an opportunity for us to once again come and place ourselves in the right place before you. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will take some time in this next week to do that. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for being willing to die for us. We thank you so much that because of your holy walk, your uncompromising walk, that death had no hold on you and that you were able to enter the depths of hell and to lead captives in your train and take the keys. And you have the keys in your hand this morning. Lord, let us come with a renewed vigour to follow you, to love you and to be obedient to you but not to earn your favour, but to say thank you for what you have done. So Lord, I ask this over this congregation this morning, and may we, Lord, every one of us, every day, everywhere that we go, Lord, let the aroma that comes from us be you. In our speech, in our thinking, in our actions, in everything. For we ask it in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.